So good. All right, so we're in First Timothy 3, and um, let's look at verses 1 through 7. I shouldn't say 1 through 7. Let's look at verses 2. No, we are going to look at 1 through 7. I'm going to skip down uh, in the text and pick it up from there, from verse 8 through 13. So, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we were obviously that's the character qualities uh, chapter, and we're going to look at. Look at that, First Timothy chapter three, one through seven, and we'll pick up the text from there. First Timothy chapter three. The Bible says, This is a true saying, if any man desire the office of a bishop, he desire the good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in uh, subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how then shall he take care of the church of God? Uh, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall in the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. So there's the condemnation of the devil and the reproach and snare of the devil in verse 7. And so let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage uh, dealing with the character qualities of a bishop, a pastor, an elder in the church. Lord, we pray a blessing on the reading and the hearing of your word and uh, ask, Lord, that you bless our time in prayer tonight. Uh, Thank you for this opportunity to gather together and pray, Lord, for... Prayer for our prayer, Lord. We just, as I was mentioned, praying for people who are, need the Lord, our opportunity, our need to share the gospel. We just pray, God, you'd be glorified in all that's said and done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, just to reiterate what we've seen, um, reflected in the characteristics of the office is uh, the office itself in verse 1 is a good office. It's a good work, and it's uh, a good office for godly men to desire. And uh, the glory of godliness is what we're talking about. It's reflected in the characteristics of the office. It's reflected also in the character of the officers. And so we see that in verses uh, 1 through 7, really 2 through 7. And then in verses 8 through 13, you have the deacons listed there. So let's just pick it up. Likewise is the first word. He says, like, so likewise, so just like the first, you know, the verses in front of it, in verses uh, 2 through 7, likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved... Then let them use the office of a deacon, uh, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So we're looking at the officers and how they reflect the godliness of Christ. Point A, uh, the point two there is reflected in the character of the officers. Point A is the, the pastor's character then must, uh, point one, must be, right? Must is not a suggestion but a mandate. So no matter who you are, uh, this passage can be very convicting as we look into the perfect law of liberty and see that we should be uh, uh, what we should be and commune with the hidden man of the heart and know who we are. In Discipleship 1, uh, on the lesson uh, on the will of God, we have a statement that we've retained in our lessons that says it's infinitely more important to be who God has saved you to be so that you can do that which God has saved you to do. Anybody remember that? 
And so I love that statement. I mean, I've that's been like a mantra in my head since 1987 um, when I started in discipleship. That's been in that those lessons a long time. That's a, that's a truth you can take to the bank. It's infinitely more important to be who God saved you to be than to do what God tells you. Because you're going to do what God tells you to be do if you are who God saved you to be. So being is going to equal doing. Right. Sometimes we get that backward. We want to do something to be something. Well, there is certainly times where God commands obedience, and obeying is important. It's better than sacrifice, right? And so trying to make up for it on the back end, just obey. But oftentimes, if you are who you're supposed to be, Jesus was the sinless Son of God, so he obeyed, even when it was hard. And so obedience comes from being who God saved you to be. It's an issue of our contrite heart and our relationship with God. So in in our discipleship one, we really teach that and we reiterate that. A man who desires the office of a bishop must understand that it's not a job, it's not what he does, it's who he is. And uh, Amy and I were just talking this afternoon. I was talking about one of the. Uh, we were just enjoying this beautiful weather today, and the, the the breeze and the sunshine, and how relaxing it was. And it took me back in my memory uh, to when we were first married in our apartment, our first year of marriage. And there was a beautiful, probably fall day or spring day like this, and the window was open, and we were a third floor apartment, and the wind was blowing through, and it was just comfortable. And I just remember laying on the bed and enjoying the the rest of a weekend without any encumberments. I'm newly married. And I said, you know what? And it wasn't long. I got my job at Fagan and I was busy all the time and I haven't, I don't think I've had a weekend like that since. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so, you know, I like, wow, that's amazing. 30 years ago. And so, uh, uh, but I still remember that. Uh, what does that have to do with anything? I don't know. But, um, uh, it was, I was going somewhere with that. Um, so, uh, it's not a job. Oh, yeah, I know where I was going. So, it's who he is. You know, really, <clears throat> it's got to be who you are, or you're not going to be satisfied, and you will be disqualified, right? And so, serving the Lord keeps you busy. God was preparing me in my vocation. I, I was telling her, once I got my job at my in the, in the construction industry, the, you can't turn off construction, very easily. So even though I was like physically in the body, my mind was always worried about the next project I had to get done because there was going to be a construction crew waiting, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You're always the, the bottleneck in the process and planning. And so, um, and so that was good preparation for ministry. Because you're you're always the bottleneck, right? You have to get the next message ready, the next thing. You know, you, it's important, and that 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 doesn't cause you as much time to you know re, you rest in the Lord, but you got to be diligent. A pastor has to be in the, the business of serving the Lord, not because it's his job, but because it becomes who he is, right? It's because you can't turn you can't turn off ministry. It's it's always there, and so. Um, and so I used to take a one-week vacation, and I learned that one week I didn't even get decompressed. It takes a week to decompress, and then a week to vacate, right? And then you kind of come back, and you're really refreshed, hopefully. And so, um, and that, you know, we're all wired a little differently. And that doesn't mean you're not casting all your care on the Lord, but a pastor, uh, you know, really needs to be like Christ. And that's not saying you don't need a break. I'm kind of getting off on a side note, but you do. Jesus went and prayed in the wilderness. You got to resort to the Father, not away from the Father. And so, uh, though it is directed, uh, this passage here that we're looking at is directed toward pastors, bishops, elders. It's also ex- the expectation of anyone or 
and or everyone who is walking in the Spirit, right? So if we're walking in the Spirit, we should have these character qualities of being, you know, uh, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, you know, apt to teach, hospitable, so on and so forth. Um, And so we are concerned about what we must be, for not for our sakes, but for the sake of the glorious gospel, because in truth, we are often the only epistles some people read, and that is absolutely the case. The reason he's he's worried about the pastors and the deacons reflecting his character is in the event that they don't get to see the Word of God itself. A lot of times people won't get to the book if they don't read your book, right? You are the living epistle that they're going to read before they see this written epistle. And of course, especially in the first century, uh, because the canon was still being assembled, uh, it was really important, and it's still really important to this day, uh, so that when people look at the the written epistle that God has given, the written Word of God, our life reflects the light that comes from that perfect Word. Okay, so point one is then must be. The must is the issue there. Uh, this is not optional, right? It's a must word. Uh, you got to do it. Point two, to be blameless. So this is self-explanatory. You don't need a lot of explanation. No man is sinless. We know that. Uh, but it is clear that the pastor will be accused because that is what the adversary does. He's the accuser of the brethren day and night, according to Revelation 12.10. That Satan is going to accuse. And so when he accuses, we've got to be blameless, like the Teflon Don, right? I mean, it can't stick. Accusations should not stick to the pastor or any man of God uh, for that matter, right? So uh, people are going to accuse you. That's not the issue. Uh, the issue is, do the, do the accusations stick? I remember one time uh, there was a big uh, a, a pastor, uh, two pastors. There was a big church split, and both pastors were being accused at, at length because people side up. It's really ugly, and then everybody starts shooting at everybody, and everybody gets hurt. And uh, so one pastor, uh, you know, the accusations would come, and it was just like the shield of faith. You know, you could just see his life, and those uh, arrows would just didn't stick. They just fell off because his character. Uh, you know, was intact. Didn't mean he was sinlessly perfect. Doesn't mean he didn't make mistakes. Uh, but the accusations, the insinuations that there were some mischievous, uh, d- d- uh, uh, devilish, you know, uh, miss some wicked intention in his heart just didn't stick. It just didn't stick at all. And the other pastor, on the other hand, it was like, well, I can believe that. Right, because of this, 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 you know, and so you can just see, and and, and at length, you know, which pastor did I I go with? The one that I, yeah, I could say that one is 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 blameless. He's still doing what he's supposed to be doing, and uh, and he's and he, from what I can tell, what I'm hearing for the most part doesn't stick. And where I didn't know, you know what you do? You give God the benefit of the doubt and prove all things. Right? You just let God decide. And in due time, God does that. All right, so point three, the husband of one wife. Uh, the husband of one wife, there there must be a discussion about what this means, right? There, I'm sorry, there has been much discussion about what this means. So here's what some people take it to mean. Some people take it to mean a man is not to be a polygamist. Well, that's a good interpretation for sure. Uh, That is certainly true. Uh, But that is a foregone conclusion that a man will not fulfill the office if he cannot meet the requirements of the mystery of the marriage defined in Ephesians 5, which is the union of one man and one woman in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so uh, some take it to mean that a man who has only been married to one woman, uh, this then would exclude a widow uh, from remarrying and holding the office of a bishop. 
So I don't believe this makes scriptural sense. As Paul will write in his same epistle encouraging widows to uh, marry, um, uh, and there is no place in scripture where widows are forbid from marrying. In 1 Timothy 4.3, uh, Paul will speak about uh, not forbidding to marry as a sin. So it makes no sense to apply uh, to those who have been widowed, right? So that would then that would leave you a problem. Uh, and so some take it to mean that a man who has never been divorced. And I think that's a good interpretation considering the context. Um, I think if someone wants to err to that side, they can. And I don't know that God would be mad. And that is certainly something that would uh, impede a man from the office if he were divorced after being born again. A man is a new creature after salvation. So, however, I think this is what Paul's referring to in part. But I think he means uh, the meaning of this in regard to character can go further. And so there are some men who are married, yet they have eyes full of adultery. So Peter is speaking of many characteristics of a false prophet in Second Peter, when he says in Second Peter two fourteen, having eyes full of adultery and cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart, they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. So lust of the eyes is certainly every man's battle, including the pastor, but the pastor should certainly be like Job and be intentional about being a one-woman man. Job 31.1 says, I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Solomon said it this way, Drink water out of thine own cisterns and running waters out of thine own well. In Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 15. And so... Um, Certainly, uh, it can be said the pastor should be the wife, the husband of one wife at a time, right? So I think that's certainly the case, uh, and I don't think a, I do not think a widowed man is is uh, uh, exempt from being a pastor. So I think a widower could be a pastor, and I do think there are occasions where a man that has been divorced can be a pastor because he's a new creature in Christ. If it's before salvation, you say, well, what about? The hypothetical situation. That's, of course, where everyone goes first. I think you would be very careful with that. And I still I don't know that it's impossible. Um, uh, but I'm just saying be careful with that, especially after salvation. Uh, but it's not impossible. So I think there could be grace there. But I think that's a local church and local pastor's job to prove all that out and see if they are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, what the reasons are for the, the previous divorce. But I think most people um, err to the side of if they've been divorced after salvation, not to install them as a pastor, as an ordained minister. Although that's not always the case. And so um, let me pause there before I move on. I want to move on, but is there any questions on that or comments? This? Oh, must? Oh, yeah, I covered that. Uh, A is pastor, the pastor's character. One is must, and two is blameless, which you have blameless. Character of the officers. Character. Character, not character, character, whatever it is. So... So, I will tell you, what is controversial among our, our ilk is a pastor who has been divorced even before salvation. There are, some, there are some who say, well, nope, he's disqualified. What would you say, what would you say about that? Well, I say when you're the pastor, you make that call. That's, if a pastor chooses that, I don't think that's wrong. Uh, that's, a, that's a standard that he holds. That's a conviction he has based on the Word of God. If that's what he wants to hold to, I think that's okay. Um, I personally wouldn't apply that to someone before they're saved. You know, I, w- I kind of start the clock once they're saved, and then pa- husband of one wife. 
And having said that, there are times, uh, we don't know what happened to Paul's marriage. He's the apostle of the Gentiles, but he had a marriage, it seems like. And maybe he was a widow. Uh, maybe uh, because of his newfound faith in Christ, uh, there was a, a law of divorce that was written. We don't really know. God leaves that ambiguous, I think, for a reason. For the reasons, in case there is a chance uh, that you would uh, perhaps ordain someone under that circumstance. I've never done that. Don't plan to do that. But it could happen. And I, I think, again, each pastor is going to have to make a call on on uh, how he proceeds in that. But I, I start with someone who's saved. Um, I start the clock on that. Yeah, Ron? Given your comments just recently, I made me think of First Corinthians chapter seven and how Paul writes all that stuff. And he's—I mean, it gives me the impression that he's writing somewhat from some sort of experience, whether it be yes, I agree with that. Or whether it be himself. Amen. I, I would agree with that. First Corinthians seven. Uh, which isn't always, you know, we're always careful to say that's not the doctrinal position on everything regarding marriage, but it does have a lot to say, especially about dysfunction in regard and sin that's encouraged. Yes, ma'am. I'm just um, curious about, um, you mentioned 1 Yeah, the, so the question for those that don't can't hear your question is like First Corinthians seven when it says if the unbelieving depart, let them depart. A brother or sister is not in bondage in such, such cases. Uh, does that give the? Are you talking about a pastor? Yeah. Would that would that give a pastor an ability to to continue or to or or eventually perhaps become a pastor if he starts that way? Uh, let's say he gets married unequally yoked, and then his wife departs. That is actually the the one exception that I think is I think there could be grace there. Yeah. Right. So, so Paul tells, and this is hypothetical, so you, you don't want to base a principle on hypothetical. So, the, again, I'm kind of giving you degrees. I, I think that, uh, yes, I think there's room there for ha- perhaps if, if Paul sends Titus out to Crete and he says, ordain elders in every city, and, and some young man is like, like a Timothy type of guy in, in Crete, you, you know, gets saved, gets on fire. He's married to some pagan and her daddy and their family's like, you know, over our dead bodies. And that whole thing ends up in some divorce. This guy's single and he remarries. Um, I Again, that's where I think, well, there, I think there probably should and could be grace to do that. Now, some of our my Baptist brothers would say, absolutely not. And I would to that, I would say, well, OK, if that offends your conscience. And I certainly don't lay hands on them. But uh, I would say that, uh, you know, I would also say to a brother who feels comfortable, if Paul felt comfortable or Titus felt comfortable, comfortable laying hands on that brother i'd be like well uh that's on you and i can see the reasons why uh, especially if he's proven that it's very careful to say not to do it quickly and to prove him right they must this so these character qualities they have to be married to somebody for a while and and be faithful in the regard to their wife and their kids so you're certainly not quick to lay hands on a guy who just went through that in any circumstance legitimate or you know first corinthians 7 where the wicked's departed let them depart brother sisters not in bondage in such cases so there is some liberty there and i will tell you when i was younger in the lord i was less gracious with that but the longer i've been a pastor uh and the more i've seen humanity the less more the more i understand just like jesus said hey it's never been in my heart 
but I allowed Moses to write this because of the hardness of your hearts. So God gives these exemptions, not because it's his, it's his direct will, but because he's gracious in making provisions for people who get caught in a snare of sin. And so, um, and so yes, so the, the long, uh, that's a long answer to a short answer, long way around to the short answer, which is I do think there's liberty in certain cases. Uh, in practice, though, I would never, you know, I, I was always leaned to, to being very conservative on any of that. And uh, But no, I don't prescribe personally to a man that's ever been divorced ever not being able to be a pastor. Um, I don't think that's, I don't even think that's the intention of what Paul is saying anywhere in the New Testament. Um, and then there's not a direct command about after salvation. Uh, and I think you just have to, to look at that in the context of time and proving and, uh, and also the circumstances, right? And so, um, you know, it would be hard for... Well, I'm just going to stop at that. I think that's where I just need to leave it and get out of the hypothetical and just stick to the, the text. Jeff, do you have any thoughts or anything on that? So that's my judgment, and uh, that's where it's at. So I, I do like to put that out there so we can discuss it. And uh, and over time, I have I've definitely... I used to be like, hey, if you've been divorced, absolutely not. That's just too bad, so sad. But God, I, I'm not. I don't. I don't have that that uh, view anymore. Especially if it's BC before Christ. Yes, sir. Yeah, we're in the age of grace, and God is full of grace. Amen to that. And so, um, of course, our grace can't be lascivious. And so, there's a balance between that and holding the office at a high level. But, you know, none of us ever meet. I'm the pastor here, and I can't meet the level all the time myself. So, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite. So, But we need to definitely aspire to, to keep keep things exactly where God wants it to be. But, no, amen. Grace is always, uh, you know, if you're going to err, it's not always bad to err to grace. At the end of the day, when it comes to laying on hands, too, you are you are transferring authority in a sense. And so it is at the discretion in some degree of the person that's laying on of hands and the presbytery. And, the, and it's not just a decision of the pastors. It's also something the whole congregation is is in on. Right. So certainly uh, even under the best circumstances, uh, you could have a dubious ordination. And uh, and so you you definitely you know want to take these things seriously. Under the best technical circumstances, it can be just as messed up. So you got to go with the the black and white of what the character qualities are. It's good discussion. So uh, point four is vigilant. Did I is that a blank? Or I just put it, okay. So that's that implies. Of course, you guys know what vigilance is. From you know. Um, so that that implies a vigilance from that which comes without. We still use this word when we talk about people having uh, all night prayer vigil. Uh, they are watching in prayer. The man of God uh, must understand he is in a war zone. Ephesians five fifteen. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And uh, you know, uh, there's a there's a time when I knew of a brother who had a an axe to grind. Uh, with a, a pastor, and uh, the pastor was actually pretty wise, and, and uh, he sat this guy down and said, "Hey, you can't do this Bible study uh, because you're undermining the faith of other people." And uh, and the guy got all mad, and um, um, <clears throat> and he started undermining the pastor even more. Uh, I was with the guy. The pastor ended up falling that uh, chastened him, but the judgment was right. 
And he kept grinding the axe and grinding the axe on that, that former pastor. And it wasn't long before, um, you know what, he was in the same trouble, if not worse. And so of what he was really railing on the other pastor. So that really taught me a lesson. I've seen that happen more than once in ministry uh, where, uh, say, someone does you wrong and you get a root of bitterness and you start really, you won't forgive, you won't let God deal with it, you, you won't let it go, you won't let God... You won't apply the word of God to the matter, and then you get a bit root of bitterness and become the very thing that you despise. Anybody ever, anyone ever seen that before? I have seen that happen more than one time, and uh, so that's a lesson to us: is not to not to look and say, "Aha, aha! Look at them! Look what they've got caught doing!" Because it won't be long; you'll be caught in the same mess. And so we should not rejoice when others are falling. That's actually forbidden. Proverbs warns us about that. And, uh, and certainly you shouldn't delight in it. And so we need to be vigilant and sober, realizing that, you know what, it, if it weren't for the grace of God, as the saying goes, there go I. It requires humility uh, and an awareness that, you know what, w- that we aren't any better than anybody else, right? Consider yourself so if you also be tempted. And uh, if the brother be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. So we can't violate those things, and we have to be vigilant and sober and of good behavior, knowing that we could get blown up just like everybody around us. And uh, that requires, of course, being sober. Uh, being sober-minded, it implies a temperance uh, or self-control uh, of the inner man. This one is uh, this is one who is influenced by the Holy Ghost more than his emotion. Uh, this implies a serious attitude toward the things of God. Uh, and so, my very desk that I sit at every week here in the office is a reminder for me to be sober. Um, I'm just a shadow. I mean, I'm not even a flicker of the intellect that used to sit at my desk. Uh, And the magnitude of the ministry that used to emanate from the very desk I sit at, tremendous, right? It's a, it's a, and you know what? Jeff, who sat at my desk? Truman Dollar, right? And so I've inherited his desk. (laughs) And well, one of the things I do when I sit at that desk is remember, I don't want to end like Truman Dollar. I want to finish my race and finish my course. I want to be faithful, right? So that's up to God. I mean, we don't want to we don't want to drop the ball. And that's not a knock on Truman at all. Um, My point is, it, it causes me to be sober sober about the office and, uh, and because it's a reminder of the need to be sober uh, at one point Truman was the, the darling of preachers in the United States but ultimately despite all his ministry accomplishments he committed suicide and uh, brethren the, the issue of being a bishop is not to be entered into lightly because you are a marked man so we get up here and we have guys and they desire the office of a bishop and they desire a good thing but they better understand, and we better be careful to teach them, that it's a sober experience. During the vision conference, Brad got up here and gave a little bit of testimony of, hey guys, this is no joke, this is tough. Count the cost. I mean, I'm summarizing what he said, but it's like, hey, count the cost, right? Count the cost. This isn't easy, you know? And uh, and Brad knows it's not easy. He's he's paying the price. And uh, and so my point in bringing that up is you got to count the cost before you go to war. you got to be sober. you got to be vigilant um, because uh, you are a marked man. 
you're a marked man. Uh, when you, you can desire the office of a bishop, but understand what that entails. You may want to be a radio man in the military. Understand that you're going to be the first one hit So because you're in communion uh, with headquarters. So that's why we must put on the whole armor of God, uh, guard uh, our head, our loins of our mind. The heart is the breastplate of righteousness. The shield of faith, uh, obviously, there to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. The feet is, are to be shod with the preparation of the... Of, uh, uh, of the gospel of peace, the sword and the helmet are there for us, and uh, you know that's not just a kid's story, right? That's a reality. Obviously, it's emblematic and it's it's a metaphor of sorts, but it's still very uh, applicable in our in our reality of spiritual warfare. All right, so uh, I think we get that. Be sober of good behavior is number six. <clears throat> good behavior. This is the same word translated as modest in First Timothy two nine. It means to have one's behavior in order and not to bring a rep- Approach upon the Lord Jesus Christ or His ministry. Second Samuel ten four through five. David's ambassadors were sent to bless the Ammonite king Hunan, and uh, returned with their beards shaved and their clothes cut off above their rear end, and it was a shame to them, and they were embarrassed. So David met the men and encouraged them and allowed them to stay at Jericho until their beards grew back, and then they could enter Jerusalem without being a shame and reproach. So beloved. Uh, we represent the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are His ambassadors. And so how we behave, look, and conduct ourselves reflects on the King and His kingdom. Not to get legalistic about the external appearance, but obviously the hidden man of the heart, even for men, is something to be super concerned about. But we do represent Him. you know. And probably today we don't uh, think maybe enough about that, but it's good behavior. How do we behave ourselves? Uh, David behaved himself wisely right, when he was in the uh, court of Solomon or I should say of Saul, uh, and, uh, and we should behave ourselves wisely uh, as well. Um, we need to make sure that we... Uh, I'm going to try to run this up here real quick and finish it up. Given to hospitality, that is to be a lover of guests, to be open and inviting to those who are passing by. A pastor must not have his four no more. He must show hospitality to all. And the, the use of his home is also important here. A man in ministry... Uh, has to be in a position where he and his wife can use their home and are willing to use their home to do ministry as often as you know as often as they can in the occasion to be hospitality to the body of Christ uh, by the way it, this is an ex, ex, expectation not just of pastors but to, of all saints uh, we're, we're discipling a couple right now they're they're extremely hospitable they're always having us in the home and it's very gracious of them and kind Romans 12:13 says distributing the necessity of the saints given to hospitality John 14:26 says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And so he can teach us how to be hospitable if we don't know how to be. The Holy Ghost can teach us those things. Uh, and so uh, we're to distribute to the necessity of the saints and be hospitable. And lastly here, and this as far as I'm going to go tonight, is apt to teach. Apt to teach, which you could have guessed from the text. This simply means to have an aptitude to teach. This does not happen by accident. Uh, the man of God is to study to show himself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, according to 2 Timothy 2.5. So you won't get anything out of it. Of it, if you don't put anything into it, in regard to the study of God's word, uh, a lot of times we don't get anything out because we don't put anything in, and so that's the way it works. So you put put time and effort in, you're going to get something out. Likewise, there must be a dependence upon the Spirit of God. Right? It's not just about our intellectual understanding of the Word of God. It's about God teaching us all things whatsoever He has said to us and being led by the Spirit. The first mention of the word "teach" is found in Exodus 4:12 when God tells Moses, "I will teach thee what to say." Next. 
Exodus 4.12, the Bible says, Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. You know, Jer- it's not in my notes, but in Jeremiah, it was very encouraging when I was a young Christian. Jeremiah's like, I can't go, I'm just a child. And God says, hey, don't tell me that. Right? You go where I tell you to go, and I'll give you the words that you need to speak. The Holy Ghost teaches all things. Uh, God has said, of course, John fourteen twenty six, which we've already read. So teachers are uh, to be mature. Hebrews five twelve says this, that at a time that you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again. What does that mean? You're immature. So there has to be a maturation to be a teacher. Oftentimes we, in our, even in our Baptist churches, put people in play to teach prematurely uh, before they're ready. They're immature. That's why discipleship is so important. Before Jesus sent his disciples out to teach, first he had them observe and learn. He had them watch what he was doing. And then he had them participate. And then as they participated, they learned. And then he engaged them in the teaching ministry as they went and sent them out. And so there's a a process of proving and and education and maturing because the Bible is clear in Hebrews 5.12 that if we aren't able to be teaching teachers then we are immature and we need to be taught again that's also a pattern we see in first corinthians so teachers are expected to be more mature than their students so when we have hbi class there's a reason i don't just say hey elizabeth you come on up in here and teach us something right Uh, nothing wrong with elizabeth but i'm not looking for i don't pull someone out of the warriors and say hey jackson mcguire or jackson uh jackson uh uh, Fleshman, come on in here and teach us today about hermeneutics or homiletics. Well, well, that would be absurd, wouldn't it? Well, it's absurd to ask people to teach, no matter if they're 90 years old or 19 years old, things that they haven't actually learned from the Word of God. And oftentimes we do that. I know when I first started in the ministry, when I first got saved, I did not know the Bible at all from Genesis to Revelation. I literally was like, Old Testament is, oh, okay, that's before Jesus. Okay, New Testament is after Jesus. Okay, so those concepts are kind of, we're up in the four or five-year-old class with Earl and Sherry or whatever that age group was, Amy and I, and they're singing, Father Abraham has many sons, and many sons has father, and they're all singing it, and they're, we're marching, you know, we're doing our turning around and sitting down, we're doing all this stuff, you know, and I'm like, what are we doing? What is Who is Father Abraham, and what does this have to do with me, and what in the, what are we singing about here? I don't know. Amy, did you pick up on all that right off the bat? I didn't. I was like, I literally was, it caused me to want to study my Bible. I'm like, i got to study Father Abraham and what all this thing is about and why are we got, five-year-olds are singing it and we're spinning around and sitting down and then you go back and you're reading Genesis 12 and you're reading all this in Genesis and, and you're like, okay, what does that got to do with marching around and sitting down? And I, you know, you're just like, <laughs> you're trying to figure all of it out and, well, what do you got to do? You got to learn. And God had me right where I needed to be. So the teachers could teach me at the level I was at, because I wasn't any brighter than a five-year-old. I needed to learn all these things. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. I'm like, who in the world is Zacchaeus, and what's he got to do with the stature, and what's he doing in a sycamore tree? And, and, you know, I'm like, who is this? Where is this story? Where where are they making this stuff up, you know? And so you're going back and digging through the Gospels, and you're, you're trying to figure out... Who is Zacchaeus and all these things? And so that's true. That's, those are true stories. And so a lot of times that's where people come into our church, that's where they're at. You know, I'm up here talking about Marxism and socialism and the isms and, you know, how the gospel, you know, all these constructs. And you know what? Some people just need to know Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, so we, we got to meet people where they're at and then take them where they need to go. It's not that we don't need to understand all those other things, but it is important 
that we are good teachers, and teachers need to have some maturation. Is the point, right? And it start we start by just learning the simple things, and God builds precept upon precept. But what happened to the the prophecy in the Old Testament in Isaiah? Right, was precept upon precept, line upon line, here little, there little, here little, there little. What happened though? But all that knowledge, they went and they fell and they fell back on the cornerstone, right? The rock of Christ tripped them up, boom, and they fell. So having knowledge alone is not enough. Having precept upon precept isn't enough, right? You still have to submit to the rock, and uh, and you got to be founded on Him, and don't let Him trip you up. Because uh, that's what happened. They rejected the cornerstone, and then they were in trouble. And so uh, Jesus Christ is the rock of our salvation. His banner over us is love. I got all these songs falling through my head now. But uh, but uh, you know, those are the things that we need to consider as teachers. Is is you know what we got to start with the basics and grow into maturity if we're going to teach others also. So let's stop there. We'll talk about the next one uh, on the way on the on next time because I still got a lot more to say on this section, uh, and so we got plenty of time to do it. All right. So um, just keep your handouts, and uh, uh, we'll pick them up uh, next week. I don't think that's my water bottle, is it? I'm not going to drink it. I don't think it is. If I don't know it's mine, I'm not going to try it. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I'm walking by faith, but I'm not drinking that. <laughs> so, thank you, brother. So, <laughs> that's right. I could have been up there for a week. All right. So, uh, thank you guys for your time. Let's go ahead and let me uh, quickly kind of conclude this with the tape, and then we'll do our prayer offline. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for anyone that's listening online. I pray a blessing to the reading and hearing of your word tonight. Uh, thank you for having our brother in as a guest tonight and I pray God that, that uh, he's encouraged in the Lord. Uh, thank you Lord for just uh, loving us and giving us your son. Thank you for the great singing that Ron led us in earlier and uh, just uh, pray for Jeff tonight as we conclude. Pray for his eye to heal his shoulder to heal up. Uh, pray for Mark Lockwood as he is certainly um, you know, bereaved at the loss of his mother and encouraged at the the destination in heaven but it's hard to let go of of those relationships in time uh, as we wait on eternity so just be with our brother tonight and uh, just uh, all these that need to hear the gospel too lord we're just talking in the pastor meeting so lord i just thank you for the time we're going to have in prayer ask a blessing on it in jesus name amen all right i'm going to turn this off